Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. So for the past two or three years, a local radio station had been putting on an annual craft beer festival at the Civic Center, where you paid an admission fee and you got to taste a bunch of craft beers. Now, they decided not to do that event this year. And since I think podcasting is the on-demand version of radio, I decided to jump in and take their place. So, this podcast is partnering with Starlight Ranch this summer to offer the Hey Amarillo Beer Festival on Saturday, August 3rd. And we're doing it even bigger and better than you may have experienced in the past if you went to that other one. We are celebrating local breweries, including Pondicetta, Six Car, The Big Texan Brewery, Long Wooden Spoon, and even a couple from Lubbock. Doors for this event open at 5 p.m., and for 30 bucks, you'll be able to sample beers from all those places, talk to the local brewmasters, and hang out with other fans of craft beer. And you don't just get to taste a bunch of beer for your admission. We're closing things out with a concert that night from Amarillo's own Fine and Dandy, followed by Fast Lane, an Eagles tribute band. The Hey Amarillo Beer Fest is coming up just a few weeks away on August 3rd. You can get tickets for it now at bit.ly slash Amarillo Beer Fest. That's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash Amarillo Beer Fest. And if you want to sponsor a booth at the event, we're going to have a bunch of people there. Talk to me. Let me know. Today's guest is Russell Lowry Hart, Ph.D., He's the president of Amarillo College. He was appointed to the job after Dr. Paul Matney retired back in 2014. Now, Lowry Hart grew up in the South Plains before coming to West Texas A&M for his undergraduate studies. And after getting his doctorate, he returned to WT and joined their faculty for almost a decade before he came to Amarillo College. Now, his earliest months at AC were super challenging, and we'll talk about that at length in this episode. But since then... He's gone on to spearhead some significant accomplishments. Amarillo College is really different from when I attended there more than 25 years ago. And in recent years, it's been gaining national attention for what it's done. Amarillo College is seriously, it's it's one of the best things happening in Amarillo. I really believe that. So here's Russell Lowry Hart. Russell Lowry Hart, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I appreciate your time. I know you're busy um, with everything that's happening at AC. Before we talk about that stuff, though, I'd, I'd like to hear just a little bit about your story, how you ended up here in Amarillo in the first place. So, Well, I grew up really in small towns outside of Lubbock. Kind of grew up in a painful family structure. My biological father was an alcoholic and abusive. My mother was amazing and made up for that in many ways. I was a professional, uh, a director of special education, so I I saw adult behavior in two different ways, one successful and one unsuccessful, and um, I think that shaped me in really powerful ways. Because of that, I've been an overachiever most of my life and and knew that education was my way out of whatever it is I found myself in. I wasn't always sure what I was moving to, but I knew school was the way to get there. Was that something that you kind of realized on your own, or was like, did your mom push education as a solution or as a pathway for you? Yeah, we never really talked about pathways or, I mean, I she got her master's. I remember vividly watching her and helping her cut cards and do research when she was getting her master's when 
when I was younger. So I remember seeing her pursue education. We never talked about it. I just, the people that were my saving grace were all teachers. And mm. and so I knew that to be an educator, you had to have a degree. So it was never in question that I I wouldn't uh, not get one. You know, as, as you were in high school and, and kind of thinking about the future, did you have something as specific as I want to be a teacher or was it just sort of this nebulous I'd like to do something in education. I, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I just didn't know of what. I think growing up in a really small school, you do everything. So I showed animals. I rodeoed. I was did football, track, band. What high school was that? Um, Wilson High School okay. outside of Slayton. And then I graduated from Slayton High School. Okay. When you're in a small school, you do everything. And so I was well-rounded. I loved school. It was a safe haven for me. And so... I just kind of always knew school would be a part of my life. It wasn't until I got to WT as a undergrad that I realized that education could look differently than teaching in a high school. Tell me about what brought you to WT. Because obviously if you're in the Slayton area, you're a little bit closer to Texas Tech. Yeah. Or you have other, you know, smaller school options there. Why did well, you end up here? Everybody that I graduated with was going to Tech uh, or not going anywhere. And... That was the appeal. Like I, to I get away to from. Get a, I needed, I needed to find my own voice. And uh, my nickname in in high school was Stone Boy, not because I was a stoner, it's because I had no expression. Like I wow. was, I was just really um, guarded. And and a lot of that was because of the family that I was living in. And college was just a way for me to find myself and find my voice, and I didn't think I could do that with people that I'd grown up with. Tell me about growing up in Wilson or in Slayton, obviously small towns, and then yeah. coming to Canyon, which is a small town but like not too far from Amarillo. Did it feel different being like in a university setting? Did it feel like you were just in any other kind was, of small it, town? It was... Um, Gosh, it opened up a whole new world to me, um, like having professors who are from different parts of the world living in a dorm room with people from Korea and Brazil and Amarillo and Dallas. I mean, those were really critically important experiences for me uh, to see that there was a broader world than one I grew up in. But, you know, like I wore cowboy cut Wranglers and boots and brush popper shirts to mm -hmm. school every day. And when I got to Canyon, I, I realized I didn't have to wear that uniform of my family. I could literally change what I look like, but that also gave me a chance to figure out who I was. And I don't think I really knew that until I got to WT. And I think that experience that was so definitive in my life, that that was the hook of me um, staying in higher education and really coming back here as a professor because... I know there were people all over the panhandle who were just like me and needed an educator to pull them out of their shells like my educators at WT pulled me. I know it, you can't go back and definitively say, well, this is the reason for this one thing. But do you think looking at the differences between a larger school like Tech, a larger city like Lubbock, where all of your friends went, and WT, which is smaller, I mean, still growing and still big, but I mean, the diversity you had at WT, you could have had at Tech. Maybe the teachers at WT, you might have had similar teachers at Tech. Was there something about that campus or getting yeah. that distance that I, helped? I, I don't think it was the distance, although I think I thought it was initially that I needed that distance. 
although it was, you know, two hours away from home, so it was still a safe mm-hmm. distance away. But it was being able to get involved and to meet people, and you just felt a part of the institution from the moment you got there. I went to Buck Branding, and I, and, and one of the lessons I learned that I tell students all the time is when you graduate high school, everyone says, like, oh, my God, it's the time of your life. You'll These are the friends for the rest of your life, and it's just not true. College is that's the place where you kind of meet your foundational friends for life. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of when you meet yourself for the first time as well, separate of familial or community influences, you get to figure out who you are with all these other people that are doing the same thing. At WT, it was just so easy to get involved and to build relationships. And it was just a really important experience for me. Tell me how your career path sort of evolved from WT. So what happened while you're there in terms of your education and and what you thought would come next? Well, I was a speech communication major, and I was going to be a teacher. I was an education major. And we got down to student teaching, and and I had to do some observations. And I did observations in the high school, and I was like, whoa, that's not for me. So I'm like, well, maybe I'm called to be an elementary education major. And so I started to prepare to do student teaching in elementary. And I was like, um, that's not for me. And I realized at that time and talking to my advisor that I could graduate with a bachelor's degree in speech communication. And if I stayed for another year to do my student teach, it'd take me another year to get my teaching certification. Mm-hmm. And so my grandfather, whom I'm named after and as definitive person in my life, Uh, was near the end of his life. And so I felt this need to graduate. And I moved home and I took care of him for three months. And he passed away. And then I was like, crap, now I have a degree. I have no, I I didn't know really what my life was going to be. And my mentor and advisor, who is Dr. Vardabedian at WT, called me and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, my grandfather died. And he's like, no, what are you doing like right now? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm sitting here and I'm kind of lost. And he said, you're going to meet Dan O'Hare at Texas Tech. You're going to go interview with him. And this was on a Thursday. And I got myself together and I met with him on a Thursday afternoon. And the following Monday, I had been admitted in the graduate program and was teaching a speech class as a teaching assistant. At Tech. At Tech. And so it was one of those experiences where it was, it was like a movie. Like in the first 10 minutes, I knew in the first 10 minutes I had found my home where I was supposed to be. And that was in, the, in a classroom, but at a collegiate level. And I've never loved anything as much as I love teaching. And that started at Tech in that first class at 8 a.m. Monday morning. When, when you compare that to the experience of teaching high schoolers or preparing for an elementary class, I mean, obviously we know the, the big differences between that. But what is it specifically about the college environment do you think that really hits you? For me, it was that I was connecting with students who were looking for the same definitive experience that I found in college. And even if they weren't looking for it, I knew they needed it. And so I could use my classes as a conduit for what I thought were bigger life conversations and use the content to facilitate 
real self-discovery. And it was such an incredible experience to see uh, students have those same life-changing uh, aha moments mm-hmm. that I had in those those same type classrooms. Well, you can develop more of a relationship with a student yeah. in that setting than you know a, a yeah. second grade teacher develops with her students. And I and I did, and I I've been in education in the classroom for 25 years, and I have maintained really close relationships with my students. Those were, I think, maybe in some cases, probably more important for me than they were for them. How long were you at Tech? I was uh, at Tech for two years as a graduate assistant and then got my master's degree and I went to Ohio University mm-hmm. uh, and got my PhD in gender and diversity communication. And it was the first time I lived away from the panhandle and it took living in Ohio, which was wonderful. And I made amazing friends uh, to realize how much of a Texan I really was. Okay, And so... When I finished my PhD in three years, my first job was at St. Edwards in Austin. And I'd grown up really religious, Southern Baptist, Church of Christ. And my first faculty meeting, they opened a bottle of wine and passed it around and had these deep philosophical discussions. And I'm like, um, I'm not in Amarillo or Lubbock anymore. Yeah. And that was such a beautiful experience to learn from true professionals. And I loved my time there. And I was able to really build a, a my own perspective on teaching that was really service-oriented and service-learning oriented. But I had an opportunity after two years to uh, a real-life moment because I got offered a job at Tech as a D1 research faculty member, and I got offered the job at WT as a much lower paid faculty member who would coach speech. And, and I came home to WT. Because that felt more like home? I knew as effective as I had been at research that that was not my heart, that students were my heart. Okay. And WT gave me a conduit for that. I don't want to get too deep into, you know, a, a doctoral dissertation or anything like that. But tell me about the gender and diversity studies aspect. I mean, why why go that direction? Um, I went that direction because I saw my mother, who was a trained professional, hire five different people and train them to all become her boss. Hmm. And I and because I, she was a woman. Because she was men. a woman, and so. I just remember thinking, here is this amazing leader who no one would ever consider to be the boss, the superintendent, simply because of her gender. And and I'd learned that I'm a I'm a feminine communicator, and I just found that all of that fascinating, the role that gender and gender stereotypes have played in my own life mm-hmm. and my own uh, journey and my own family's journey. And well, I and probably throughout it. this region, too. Uh, I mean, completely. we're in the thick of that. Completely. Once you got back to WT, how did that experience kind of shape where you ended up going from there? Well, I came to WT as the speech and debate coach, and I was told by the person who left that you couldn't be competitive from Canyon because it was too far away and no one would come. You couldn't recruit anybody to four years later being the third-ranked team in the country behind UT and Bradley, and I'm still bitter about it because <laughs> I think we got home down and should have won. And we became a nationally prominent team, and there's a reoccurring theme in my coaching of that team to 
what I did in administration there than what I'm trying to do here. And it's just believing that there is something unique and powerful about this region and the people from it, and that we have a work ethic and a unity that can propel us to greatness, and I feel a need to call us to that. And so I took kids from Caprock and Hereford and Dumas and uh, Amarillo, and we destroyed the rest of the nation hmm. in four years and and became a family in the process. And And I think in hindsight, what I learned from that experience was that I'd built a team of people that were looking for family in the same way I was. Yeah. So a lot of kids from broken families, a lot of kids that were searching, and and we found our purpose with each other. But in the midst of that, becoming a national powerhouse, um, my wife and I were pregnant with our first naturally born child, and I just realized I couldn't travel every weekend for nine months, that I needed to be home, and I wanted to be a father in ways that I didn't feel like I had uh, one growing up, and so I stepped down from that role and, and moved into administrative role. Did you find that your gifts and talents and even your calling was suited for the administrative role as opposed to the, you know, hands-on teaching role, or was that like an adjustment process? Uh, it, it's still an adjustment okay. process because I think my gifts are in people, in vision, and, and administration is oftentimes defined by bureaucracy, which I find incredibly frustrating, uh, soul-sucking, and um, innovation-killing. Okay. And so I think most of my administrative career has been defined by building outside the bureaucracy and challenging and changing it. And I kind of enjoy that part of this job. Tell me when the opportunity at Amarillo College happened. Like how, how many years were you into the administrative side at So WT? I'd been in administration at WT for four years. Okay. And um, as in a part of that time frame, I was a part of the community collaborative that Annette Carlisle created called Panhandle 2020. Right. And I facilitated the, the year-long study on education attainment. And what I learned in that study was that our community was at risk. The community that had defined me, the community I was raising my family in, was at risk. And that if I truly wanted to put my, my heart where the biggest change was going to happen for this community was going to be at Amarillo College. It was clear that the community college, of which I had no experience with mm -hmm. or in, was the foundation of changing that number. And I'd never considered what it would mean to try to do that at WT, which is a great institution and defined who I am. And I never thought I would leave WT, but when the opportunity came to come to Amarillo College in 2010, as a VP, I chose it because I thought it was an opportunity to be a part of what I thought was the solution for our community's future. And then how long were you here before Dr. Matney left? I was here for four years. Four years. And I had just been named Academic Administrator of the Year, and I was in Florida getting the award, and I got a phone call from Paul, and he just said, I'm about to have a cabinet meeting, and I'm telling all of you I'm retiring. And I was gobsmacked and unprepared. Mm -hmm. um, I just respect him a great deal. And 
honestly, at that point, I didn't know that I was ready to step into this role. I really wanted four or five more years uh, to understand the community college world more specifically. But when it came time to consider who else might be in that role, there wasn't anyone else internally. And I thought, one thing I know is that I love this community and I'm passionate about its future. And I didn't want an outsider to come in and and reshape a vision for the college that was separate of this community. And so mm-hmm. I put my hat in the ring. Tell me what it's like, you know, with someone like Paul Matney, who had been, you know, part of AC for decades. He was my advisor when I was at Amarillo years. College, you know, and had been president for you know, so many years to step into those shoes, obviously very big shoes to fill. As someone who had, what, four years yeah. of experience at AC, you were still an insider, yeah. but... But not um, really. Yeah, I mean, was was that intimidating to you? Did you feel like some freedom to to come and put your mark on it? or It was incredibly intimidating and scary. And there were multiple times in the process that if, it, if anyone had asked me, I probably would have withdrawn my name because mm-hmm. I'm like, how can you replace someone who's beloved uh, in this college, in this community. But I had a, I had a, a um, really close friend, colleague, talk me through, and he's like, you're not replacing Paul. No one can replace Paul. You're, you're not here to extend Paul's legacy. You're here to respond to what this community needs from you. And it was a community in transition, and so I felt like the college needed to be in transition. But something really challenging happened in that process that none of us were prepared for. And we got a a cut in state funding that was, we were prepared for a $400,000 cut and we got a $4 million cut. Yeah. And we- Welcome to the president's office. Right. And I'm sitting here and I, I had a board member that was asking for budget projections. And so I was talking to the vice president of business finance and I'm like, I need 10 year budget projections. Because we got to figure out how we're going to get out of this mess, but not just get out of it for today, but how do we solve for the long term? And it set me on my tail end. I mean, it was a recipe for disaster. And I knew at that point that what the college needed from me is not what the college wanted from me. And that was a really clear reformation of our practices, our purpose, our, our goals, mission. We had to reinvent ourselves to to save ourselves, and it was painful, the most painful thing I've ever been through. Well, and as someone who has admitted that, that you're a people person, it put you in a position to where you had to be the guy either talking to faculty or staff or saying, look, we've got to cut back on these things. Or, we've got to cut back on these positions. I mean, you're immediately set up to be like the bad guy. Well, and I was the bad guy, and and I didn't like being the bad guy, but it's what the college needed of me. But I learned so much. I made some really big mistakes in that process. So one of them, which is ironic as a communication professor, is I held a lot of town halls and I was as transparent as I could that our enrollment figures were going down over the last uh, 10 years. Our hiring had gone up over the last 10 years and our state funding had gone down over the last 10 years. Not a recipe for success. So I had all these town halls. I showed the data. I'm like, I'm making impact. I'm showing them so they at least know what's happening. And, And the mistake that I made is I mistook information for communication. And so I had all these town halls on a stage with my my slides 
But I was scared, honestly, to sit down across the table and look someone in the eye and communicate about what those numbers meant to them. And I can, I can cut myself some slack and say I didn't do it because I didn't want to look people in the eye and tell them it was going to be okay when I didn't think it was. But I had to grow up and I had to become the president the college needed, not necessarily the, the person, the comfort level that I wanted. Yeah. And once I realized that I had, I had over-communicated the issue, but I hadn't really made a communicative connection to help people understand what it meant, I had, I had to change course. And then I spent the, the next year just sitting down and talking to as many people as I could in as many forms as I could, one-on-one in groups, breaking bread together, breakfast, lunch, dinner, offices, in hallways, whatever it took. I had to establish that community of trust with a college that had just known me for four years and now I'm talking about budget cuts and retirement buyouts and reorganizations and restructures. Not what I thought I would be doing, but it's it's what I had to do. So you you mentioned the way that the college has transitioned. Um, Knowing that you went through that difficult process, now you're on the other side of it. Yeah. Give me give me an idea of where AC is and what these last few years of transition have brought it to. I'm a dreamer. I dream big, and and I dream big not just for our college but for our community. But if you would have told me three years ago that um, when we were in the, the midst of ugly headlines and nasty letters mailed at my house and really ugly the ugly underside of making difficult decisions, the personal side where your family feels like they can't go to the grocery store either. It was yeah. to go from that painful experience to being a nationally prominent institution that uh, the rest of the nation is looking to for hope. I was like, yeah, we'll get there, but it'll be seven years from now, right. not two and a half. And Why did it happen so fast? Uh, for several reasons. One is once we we saw the crisis, we didn't waste it. And if people were going to retire before they really wanted to, and and we had five people that lost a position they were in, we had to honor those people and the sacrifices they made for the college by getting it right. Uh, so it's happened quickly because we didn't make the easy short-term solution. We chose the long-term difficult choice. So we didn't raise taxes. We didn't raise tuition. We managed it by cutting our expenditures and getting more effective and efficient in what we were doing. But at the same time, we were listening to students. I used secret shoppers to go through our process and tell me what did and didn't make sense. I asked our students to tell me what the perfect college looked and felt like for them. Those experiences, I sent people to Zappos Culture Camp. I mean, those experiences ultimately define the values for the college. Our students wrote our values for the college that became the rallying cry for who we needed to be. And I've always, I think the turning point is when we got clear on who our student was and we made a commitment that we were going to love the students we have, not the students we used to have Mm -hmm. or the students we thought we had, that we had to love the student we had. And that started by listening to her, knowing her uh, and privileging her needs above our own. And the minute we started doing that and making really bold decisions to move to eight-week classes and to hire social workers and redesign our courses to modernize the the pedagogy, 
the data started changing dramatically. And where most of the country would celebrate a 1% to 2% increase in completion, we were seeing 10% increases in completion rates every year. Hmm. And that, I think, is ultimately the speed of our transformation and the fact that love is the foundation of that transformation, the simplicity of love, of loving the student you have, and intentionally using the word love, I think has captured the imagination of people across the country. You you talk about the student that you have, you know, compared to maybe the student that you want or that used to be at AC. I, I know it's an incredibly diverse student population, yeah. so you can't say, this is my student, you know, it's a 32-year-old, whatever. But give me an idea of who AC currently serves, you know, that maybe sets it apart from Texas Tech or another school like that. Well, first and foremost, we truly serve our community. And so I often talk internally and we talk externally, too, about Maria. That's our typical student. And she's smart and she's ambitious and she's capable and she's wearing the weight of the world on her shoulders because she's having to care for um, her family and wearing the expectations of her extended family while she goes to school and works two part-time jobs. But Maria is 27, raising 1.2 kids. She's a Hispanic female with real financial need, first generation. 71% of our students are first generation college students. And so that's been the transformation is is to look at everything through her eyes rather than demand she adapt to us, we're having to adapt to her. And what we know first and foremost from Maria is that she needs an environment where she feels safe and seen and loved. And when she feels protected and cared for and loved and supported, then she can create magical learning experiences for herself. And she's doing that. You also mentioned the that the community itself was in transition and yeah. that Amarillo College needed to be able to adapt to that. Give me an idea of what that transition is here in Amarillo and Canyon and, and the Panhandle, but also the role that Amarillo College is playing in it, you know, with the workforce, with the economy, all those different elements. Well, there's an economist that I can't think of his name at the moment, but he wrote a book about predicting which cities were going to succeed or fail. And he can predict it based on one single number, and it's education attainment. Hmm. And our education attainment rate when we started, I think, in 2010 was 24%. So what his book predicted is that we would shrink in population over the next 20 years. We would have less uh, economic diversity and the only sector growth we would have would be low-skill manual labor. That 24% is people who have completed That's higher education? That's 24% of people or? who have a credential of any kind, okay. any post-secondary credential. Whether it's a certificate or a two-year certificate, degree. Certificate, associate's degree, bachelor's, whatever. Okay. We've increased that to about 35%, but we really needed to be at 45 or 50%. If we can get to that number, then we start attracting a different kind of company that will actually locate here. Tech companies will locate here when we can get 300 more uh, students to graduate with some kind of tech degree or tech skill. Mm. And that's the purpose of AC is to take the community that we have because we are, I say this a lot, Amarillo is only as strong as its college because we are fundamentally the workforce trainer and provider for the companies that reside in the panhandle. 
our economic impact says that. We have a $660 million a year economic impact, which is greater than all of the other higher education entities in the panhandle combined because our graduates come here and then stay here. Even if they go to university, and a lot of them go to WT and have an amazing experience there, but if they start here, they typically stay here, and that's why we've been able to increase our education attainment rates. But the community has to understand that unless we can invest in education, it doesn't. The, our economic opportunities are going to be really challenging. And so I feel that burden. I wear that burden every day. Our college wears that burden every day. And I think that's why we had to so aggressively reimagine ourselves is the hope of Amarillo really rests on our ability to graduate Maria. And Maria needed us to be different than we had ever been in order to ensure she graduated. And having made those changes, what do you see like, you know, coming the next five years, the next 10 years? I know a bond issue recent, recently passed, yeah. which it is a lot of catch-up kind of stuff, yeah. you know, to do the things that you'd been putting off because of all the other, you know, troubles. But what do you see the path forward, you know, as you look to the future? I think our path forward is truly innovating Amarillo into a new economy, uh, a tech economy, an innovation economy, a data science economy. So you'll, you're going to see a lot from us over the next five years in creating accelerated coding camps. We have a partnership with Apple where in three classes you can get an Apple app development certification. You'll see more of those partnerships develop. Uh, and the reason those tech uh, degrees are so critical is it's the one degree that you can get and work for a company in Germany and still stay in Amarillo while we collect enough mass of tech skills to actually get companies to move here. And so even though, you know, Amarillo has traditionally been, you know, very strong in agriculture, very strong in energy, oil and gas, mm -hmm. petroleum, um, you see the real growth being in this untapped market for, for technology, which bleeds into all those other industries well, too. It, exactly. I mean, in the, the historical economic power in energy and ag are all going to be redefined over the next 10 years by technology, by automation, by artificial intelligence, by bioscience. And what's so exciting to me when you look at the revolution that's coming, one, it's the first time we've had two revolutions that will happen simultaneously, a, an artificial intelligence revolution and a bioscience revolution. We've never had big revolutions happen you have the computer revolution, the industrial revolution, where we're going to have two revolutions on that scale happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. But they're not specific to a place, a region, or a national, a natural resource. So they can happen anywhere. And I'm just sold enough on this community to believe that it should happen here. In addition to having the workforce in place, like what steps do we need to take to make that happen, to, to bring that you know, um, I, I think we've got to unleash a, a culture of innovation, mm -hmm. uh, not just for entrepreneurship, but with our existing workforce and, and existing workforce partners, our companies that already exist. We're not going to entrepreneur ourselves into a new economy. We're going to have to help existing uh, companies transition to AI, robotics, bioscience, and so our relationship is going to be different. Um, we're going to have to facilitate those conversations with existing partners. Um, 
because typically our region is conservative in this regard. We're going to watch a transition happen. We're going to let someone else prove it or fail at it. Right. And then we're going to make it work after someone else has proven it. In this situation, we don't have that luxury. The communities that step out in front and own it are the ones that are going to grow. And then the rest of us are going to be penalized by it. And what keeps me up at night is you look at our economy. It's a service-based economy. Uh, in Amarillo, we have, what, 200,000 trucks that go through our community every day. What happens when those trucks don't have people behind the wheel in a driverless community? Mm-hmm. And we can say that's happening 20 years from now. I think it's going to happen five years from now. And we've got to be prepared. We're lucky in that most communities are hiding from it rather than preparing for it. And so we can get out ahead of it and and, and chart our own path. And I think we're going to do that. I want to close this part by just asking about the position of Amarillo College within this larger community. I mean, obviously, AC has been here for decades. It's mm-hmm. been part of, of the fabric of the city. Given the, the growth that's happened here, the awareness of Emerald College on a, na- a national scale, how much of that can you contribute to just where we live and the people who live here? I mean, what kind of emphasis or what kind of influence does the unique character of this region have on the success of the college? I, it's everything. And it's why I've raised my family here. My wife's from Borger. This is home. And and what I tell people across the country, because we just had last week, we had 200 people from 61 schools, 17 states come to Amarillo College to figure out how to innovate themselves yeah. out of the problems that we They want to know what's the secret sauce They want to know here. the secret sauce. And we can talk about our, our systems changes and all of that, and they're really important and powerful. But... The, the reason they work is that our community is uniquely positioned with citizens that are community-oriented and problem solvers. We don't have a lot of prima donnas here. We just solve problems. And, it, and I think it's unique because we're isolated from Austin, from D.C. We realize no one's going to swoop in and solve these problems for us. we got to solve them ourselves. And we do them together. We do them in unison. We're, we're not a community that eats its own very often. And I and I think it's why I have so much hope that the innovations that are going to be required from us will step up and meet. This episode of Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Amber Morgan and the Manny Camper. Now, Amber was this podcast guest in February of 2018. She's the city's most creative and most talented nail artist. She takes private appointments at Ugly Press Salon, but she also comes to you through her Manny Camper, which is a mobile nail salon that's booked for birthday parties, for bridal and bachelorette parties, for a girl's night out, employee appreciation, whatever you can think of. Go to themannycamper.com to learn more about it or follow the Manny Camper on Instagram. Hamrello is also sponsored this week by Dr. Eddie Sauer. Dr. Sauer practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. And I mean, he's been my dentist for 25 years and my kid's dentist too. He's an expert on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patient's smiles and their teeth positioning. And in fact, Dr. Sauer does this so well, he now travels all over the country and even internationally to teach other dentists how to use this. So you can learn more, visit shimondental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N dental.com. Okay, I'm back with Russell Lowry Hart, uh, president of Amarillo College. Russell, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. 
I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, your job is to answer those in whatever amount of detail you want to. I know you have a lot of experience in the world of speech, so you know no Lincoln Douglas <laughs> stuff or anything like that. But uh, let's see where we get. The first one is is one that's just for you. I'd like to know what's one thing that most locals don't know about Amarillo College that I mean that might surprise us. I think people are surprised when they find out we have over ten thousand students and we're the largest higher ed partner in the entire region, and and people don't understand the economic impact we have on this community. And that we're a predictor of whether someone's going to stay here and live the rest of their life here or not. If they come to AC, they always seem to come back and live. Why do you think that is, that, that there's a, a little more stickiness, I guess, related I, to AC? I think there's several things. One, um, we're a community college, and so you're actually going to school with people from the community, and so there's more reasons to stick here. They're from here originally. Mm-hmm. And, and I like to think that we're so connected to the workforce that they're getting mentors and internships as students here that once they finish their bachelor's degree or their certificate, draw them back here. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Well, I don't talk about this out loud very often, but I, I'm not an adult yet because I don't like coffee. Okay. Every year, once a year, I order coffee and think this is the year I grow up and become an adult, and then I taste it, and then I realize I'm not an adult for another You've year. You've been acquiring the taste for um, several years and haven't quite gotten yeah. it. Yeah. So I'm a tea drinker, uh, and my favorite place to drink tea and to meet people from all over the community is Palace Coffee on the Washington Street campus of Emerald okay. College. Which is you know right downstairs from your yes. office, so that's fairly convenient. And I love the smell of coffee and drink their tea. Okay. Well, someday. Someday you'll get there. What does this area have too much of? I think it's not just our area. I think it's our country right now. I think we too easily buy into conspiracies that on logic make no sense. And uh, I think we do ourselves real damage when we would rather believe a conspiracy than a fact sitting in front of us. I think I agree with you. That's not necessarily just a local thing. It's not. But I think it has local implications. And whether it's political or in the last elections we had locally or on a national level. I just think we've got to get to a place where we trust people in leadership roles and instead of assigning a conspiracy to every decision they make. Okay. It's it's more a matter of outlook that implicitly you assume someone is up to no good or implicitly you assume someone is, is working on your behalf. I think one of the big moments in my life was when I was challenged by someone that I consider a coach that's is are you leading with positive intent and if you are then just move forward but if you're going to lead with positive intent you have to assume the people that walk in your way that walk in your path are also walking with positive intent and it's been a a life-changing reorganization of my perspective to to lead with the assumption that everyone's trying to do their best mm-hmm. until they prove otherwise i'm going to believe that everyone's doing their best rather than uh, buy into a conspiracy that may not have anything to do with the person in front of me at all okay what does this area not have enough of the one thing that bothered me the most about this area is that i i don't think we have enough esteem in ourselves and and I've shared this before, and I'll share it again. I, I have a tally in my phone, and every time I meet a teacher, an educator, a faculty member, I say, tell me about your most successful student. I'm over 300 interviews right now, whether it's in the grocery store, 
in a restaurant in Dillard's. It's tell me about your most successful student. And I've yet to have a single educator locally tell me about a successful student that stayed here. Hmm. The ones they see as successful are the ones that found the a career that, outside. That are in New York or D.C. or in Austin or Dallas. We don't necessarily see success as staying here. And so I just don't think we have enough esteem that this area is uniquely powerful. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? You, I mean, you obviously you talk about it. It's in the name of the college you represent when you're speaking to other groups. Um, when they ask, what's Amarillo like? What do you tell them? I, I tell them it's a, it's a community defined by practical problem solving that when push comes to shove, the, what I love about this community is that it fundamentally doesn't care where you came from or what your paycheck is or what your title is or what your address is. If you can help solve a problem, then dive in the middle of it and we're all going to work together. And I love that about this place. When was the last time you went to Paladuro Canyon? Well, I go every summer. All right. Um, and we go to the canyon and we go see Texas. And my oldest son uh, had been in Texas for several years. Um, but I'm not a nature person. So I'd love to watch a documentary about nature more than I'd like to be in the middle of it. Uh, but we always have outside guests and it's the first place I take them okay. because I think it captures the grandeur of the people. It's it's a physical manifestation of what I think is a collection of the most beautiful souls in the world. I don't know if you'll answer this one, but what's your favorite building on any of the AC campuses? I know it's not just the Washington Street campus, so just thinking of, of the broader reach of AC, do you have a favorite building? I don't know if I have a favorite building, but I, I do have a favorite place, the Kritzer Diesel Mechanic Bay. And the reason I love it is when you go out there, you see students from all walks of life mm -hmm. and you see faculty that are they're all getting their hands dirty they're all learning and building and doing something they're not sitting in a in a classroom reading a book they're doing it but it represents what i love the most about this community the kritzer family allowed us to put in a, a hydraulics portion of the curriculum in the bay and we're one of the few community colleges in the country that are not just offering diesel mechanics, but hydraulics part of that. And so I love going out there and just sitting in the corner and watching magic happen. Where is that located? That's out on our East Campus. Okay. And uh, last question, what's your favorite local restaurant? Well, if you could see me, you know I have a lot of them. I love to eat. I like I like holes in the wall. Um, my, my favorite place right now is this place called Thai Garden out on the boulevard. Mm -hmm. It's just really authentic, unassuming, real Thai food. And a friend of mine took me out there and she said, don't ask, just order things and eat them and don't ask what they are. And it's opened up a whole new world of flavor. And I, and I love going out there and exploring. Again, where you just have to trust that someone yeah. is going to, to serve you their best. Exactly. All right. Well, that concludes the uh, the eight straight questions. Russell, I'd like to end by just asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So uh, given the the listeners, what, what would you want them to know about or to experience related to, to this region? My family and friends will be shocked by this because I'm, I'm a sports fanatic, but I've never been a baseball fan. But I 100% fully endorse the sod poodles. And 
I've never had as much fun in this community as I've had going to sod pool games. Uh, the communal aspect of it, it's truly everyone across all sectors of the community and the panhandle. And we're all cheering for the sod poodles. And it's just a blast. And it, and it, I think it's an example of what can happen when we step out in courage and dream bigger than ourselves. Okay. Russell Lowry-Hart, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. My privilege. Thanks for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Dr. Lowry Hart for the interview and, well, to Amarillo College itself for playing such a big role in my own education so very long ago. Thanks also to Amber Morgan of Manny Camper and Dr. Eddie Sauer for sponsoring the show. And a big thanks to Angelina Marie for doing the heavy lifting of editing this podcast week after week. Executive producers of Hey Amarillo are Daniel Davis, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Neil Nossiman, Wilson Lemieux, Ryan Pennington, Wes Reeves, Jennifer Callahan, Katie Linger, Patrick Burns, and Chris Selda. If you like the show, review it on Apple Podcasts. That's, I mean, it's a fairly simple thing to do, but it really helps other people discover this podcast. And if you do it, I'll, I'll appreciate it. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.